Research organization Ask Africa is always busy uh, and, and they're been, they've been especially busy, I think, during this COVID period, uh, doing all sorts of research into how South Africans are feeling about the particular situation in which they found themselves. And uh, the summary of their latest report says uh, it's interesting to look back over the, the last 19 weeks of lockdown tracking because they say it was a lot longer than they initially anticipated. And week 19 seems to have been the last week of the worst bit levels one to three. Uh, so what they're saying is they're hopeful that level two will bring some sort of social normalization, which is required for the currently fragile mental health of citizens in this country. And I think we can all agree that it has been a time that has literally blown our minds. You know, it's thrown us into chaos. Many of us feeling deep stress, anxiety, frustration uh, and hopelessness as well uh, that has led to to people, you know, really, really going through a time where their mental health is extremely fragile. Andrea Rademeyer is on the line to me and I, I want to know from her some of the details that came out of this because it is such an extensive report. Andrea, I'm going to try my best to include as much of the content that you have because it really is vast. But let's talk about some of your key insights. Welcome onto the program this evening. I see emotional distress is still pretty high. Yes, Joanne. Um, emotional stress is actually, to, to contextualize it, three times higher than financial distress. And if you consider that 61% of our citizens are reporting a loss of income, you can just see how high the emotional distress is. And that's why I'm also raising it in this report, because South Africans, being such resilient peoples, don't like to talk about emotions. And citizens, um, you know, particularly so, they, they want to say they're managing, and women actually more so even than men. But the fact is that emotionally we're not doing well. Um, we, we're severely affected by lockdown. Um, Ubuntu, I've seen, you know, we all talk about Ubuntu. And we, I think, have, have built the first statistical model around this because yeah. in the Northern Cape, where the Ubuntu ratings are actually the highest in the country, at 76%, we've also measured the lowest emotional distress. So it's quite clear that Ubuntu actually helps people through a crisis situation. So now is the time to talk to Ubuntu. Yes, uh, it's a bit disappointing that, I mean, we've certainly seen a lot of Ubuntu on the on the part of our listeners during this time, but it still looks like our province in the Eastern Cape are, are struggling. Yes, the Eastern Cape and even Gauteng um, report the lowest levels of Ubuntu. Now, Eastern Cape surprised me. Um, because generally there's no link between, well, there is a link between high finance. So, so the people that are more self-sufficient financially generally engage in less of Ubuntu, even though they will, they will pay more. They don't ask anything and they don't have a sense of Ubuntu. They do it more out of a sense of responsibility. But in the Eastern Cape, um, it li- it's actually one of the lowest at, 58 percent and um, the Eastern Cape particularly having struggled so much during COVID one would have liked to have seen it higher. Yes of course I see that half of citizens are very nervous about underlying health conditions Andrea. Yes so so we asked 
asked um, which medicine, whether people believe they have underlying conditions, and half of them do. Now, in this context, um, we previously also measured whether citizens are comfortable in going to hospitals, clinics, uh, pharmacies. In fact, is they are not. And I think it's now become an open secret that citizens have avoided going to hospitals and clinics in particular for their chronic medication, whether it's diabetes, TB, HIV, AIDS. And Joanne, if there's one thing you can do, please encourage your listeners to go to clinics, to go to hospitals, because we don't want a second wave of health crises, which are simply caused by citizens not accessing their chronic medicine. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that is hugely important. I I see many people are really afraid of unemployment, uh, Andrea, in some ways more afraid than they are of contracting COVID. Yes, yes. It's when we ask people without so spontaneously to tell us what is the single thing they are most scared of in South Africa right now, they say it's unemployment. And um, Joanne, it makes sense if you if you um, consider that more than half of citizens are already um, distressed because they've had to they've either been retrenched or they've been unemployed. They've had to work reduced hours. 61% are reporting a loss of income. And um, maybe a matter that, that you know, it, it certainly struck me that this week is the very high levels of borrowing and even selling of personal assets. Now, the borrowing happens um, from uh, whether it's a stock sale, whether it's family or friends, um, banks in, in the least cases, actually. Um, and a lot also go into machinistas, even though... They don't even expect to be able to pay it back. If you look at the loan value, Joanne, 45% of the loans are taken for a value below a 1,000 rand. And I think that's the clearest sign of how distressed our citizens are. Yes. I'm skipping... A thousand rand is not much, and yet that's what people need. It really isn't. And and I I suspect that most Mm. of it is being spent on basics anyway, Andrea. I absolutely believe so because 54% are concerned about the level of food reserves in their homes. 60% of women are concerned about the level of food reserves in their homes. So these loans are literally just to come by. And, you know, we often have um, critique in our country on on social grants and this figure of 22 million people um, getting social grants. But this number shows us how important those grants are. If a thousand rand makes a difference between being able to survive with food or or not, I think you know I'd I'd vote for these grants just having looked at this number. Yes, yes, of course. Corruption is a huge thing, and it surfaces in your report in so many forms. I see people are worried about it. People believe it's increased, yeah. uh, and and people are, are hopeless that the president is is really able to curb it the way he should be able to. Yes. So, so the biggest thing that we've seen since May, Joanne, is that more than 70% of citizens are aware of health corruption particularly. Now, health corruption is like the second wave of state capture. So it's impossible for the politicians to only have started saying now that they've seen this corruption. And that, the, the, that disconnect between what politicians pronounce as corruption and what 
citizens have experienced have brought a very sharp loss in trust. We've seen in the last week that there's been a slight uptick in trust in President Ramaphosa and Minister Mkhiza speaking out about it, but um, it's only about half of the citizens that believe that the president can curb it and even less believe he is taking control to stop it. And citizens desperately want um, the politicians to to do something. And 81% say they want an, to see an example being made of the corrupt. So because they, they, the citizens, see and believe that corruption is distorting upliftment and development of our people. Right. Uh, Andrew, you've also listed a number of, of possible uh, what you call ambitious recommendations for lockdown relief. Would you like to talk us through some of the, the salient ones there? Sure, and thank you so much for that, that invitation. So on health, I would, the first thing I would do is to run a communication campaign to encourage citizens to go to clinics, go to hospitals for their testing and their chronic medication. Uh, 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 I can't urge that enough. And then we need a strong team of mental health experts to address mental health. The time is now to stop talking. We have to do something. So operate a solution. Let's, let's find a solution to address the mental health of our citizens. The thing about this, Joanne, is that if we don't, we're going to have an entire um, society that's actually in post-traumatic stress disorder. And when, when our citizens are in that space of post-traumatic stress, they can't function, yes. they can't work, they can't raise their children. So we have to respond to this. Um, and then we need a team of addiction experts to address the addiction cycle of the heavy drinkers. Um, I've said on your program before that we are one of the top five nations in the world of heavy drinkers. Yeah. Let's not have rules that affect everybody in terms of heavy dr- uh, or drinking because it also supports um, a whole industry and employment. But we have to do something about the heavy drinkers, you know. No, and no, it always goes with alcohol and tobacco. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And get the scientists involved. You know, with, with my work on the um, MAC technical committees, I've seen the most astounding scientists. Our country is a country of scientists. Let's use them to help um, build a behavior change model for heavy drinking. What, what um, about... And uh, it's really yes. about... It. Yes, sorry. sorry sorry to come in there, uh, Andrea. I wanted to ask you, because we haven't mentioned this before, the red tape for informal SMME and SMEs to, to encourage these, these businesses to grow, uh, given that so many of them have really suffered under lockdown. Yes, they suffered massively. Now, the, the problem I have with, with our government work around um, encouraging entrepreneurs is that all the red tape is killing entrepreneurs. Now, in any country in the world, entrepreneurs are a very rare commodity. So what you want your um, government to do is to encourage those entrepreneurs because it's them that create jobs. It's not government that can create jobs. It's those entrepreneurs. So I would right now reduce that cost, make it quick to register a company in a day, make it easy, um, create tax breaks for 
public-private partnerships, involve civil societies, create tax holidays. I've just seen a notice coming in that there's something about tax holidays that went through Parliament today. But we need to encourage the informal market and also the taxi industry to enter the tax net. We saw 37% of our respondents saying, get the taxi industry and the informal market to pay tax because then they can access the benefits which tax brings and which government protection also brings. So, so I'm very pro that. Right. Andrea, last one, and, and this, is, this is your last point, but I think one of the most important about coordination around a team of gender-based violence experts to implement a more effective strategy. Yes. So, so I, am, I think if the, the, one of the things which we've seen with lockdown is our gender-based violence is out of control, and we need to do something now. So there are fantastic experts and operators. Civil society is doing wonderful things. Get them together with business, with government, and implement a victim protection system. But now, before Christmas, get the president to say, we end this, we, we want to implement solutions, we want to define the solutions by September as a, as a product from Women's Month or however he wants to position it. Yeah. But we need to have this protection before Christmas and launch a 10-year project mm-hmm. because changing uh, gender-based violence is not quick. It's not a six-month thing. But let's make sure we have, we've closed this challenge in our society in the next 10 years. And let's report on it twice a year. But we have to er- eradicate this from our society. Andrea, thanks so much for speaking to us this afternoon. Andrea Rademeyer, she's the Ask Africa CEO and founder.